Let me pray. O great God of land and water, would you come now in your word and would you pursue us? Would you pursue us even in our rebellion so that you might be so kind to plunge us deep into a revelation and experience of your mercy? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now many of us had the privilege of growing up in Sunday school. I can see you there, an obedient kid perhaps, a naughty kid like me, and there's a Sunday school teacher. What was it? A drawing? Um, Those felt kinds of shapes for the book of Jonah. There it was, a fish of some kind of creation. You know, Sunday school teachers need to kind of grab hold of something and when they're Got to, when they've got to Jonah, it's, it's this big fish portrayed somewhere. Anyone remember that from uh, Sunday school? <clears throat> the thing about the book of Jonah is that there are 48 verses in the book of Jonah, but less than 10 of them relate to a fish. That means that 80% of this book is not really about a fish, although that's what we remember. This book is about many things, but it's, I think in one sense... It's a book about two people, two men. On the one hand, this book is a book about this man, this man who has grown up, like some of us, hearing about who God is week after week, day after day. He would hear the reading of the law. He knew of the covenant that God had made with his people, how God had rescued his people out of Egypt, and he knew the songs. He knew the songs of Israel to sing And his name was Jonah. But also in this book, we meet another man. The other strong character in this book we find in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. If you've got the book of Jonah there, you can open it up. The other strong character is this king. Uh, We don't know his name, but we know that he's a king. And he hasn't grown up like Jonah. He knows nothing of the character of God. And he is the king of Nineveh. And we have these two men. And I think in this book, these two men represent two types of people. They represent the kind of person who's growing up every week hearing about the love of God. And they also rep- and the, the king represents the kind of person who hasn't grown up like that doesn't know much about who God is. And this is the great thing about this book. This book is for people who have grown up like that. And equally, this book is for people who haven't, who don't know much about the Bible, who maybe don't even know a memory verse. See, the great thing about the book of Jonah is that it's about all of us. And more correctly, it's about God and his unrelenting grace in pursuit of both types of people. We're going to see, uh, as we look at the book of Jonah over the next six weeks, that God's grace is for us here in church, but equally, equally God's grace is for those that aren't here with us in church. The book of Jonah starts there in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1 it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amati. Sounds like an Italian dessert. 
And verse 2, it says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because, of its, wickedness, because its wickedness has come up before me. The book starts with this pursuit, with this pursuit of people who are not yet God's people, with the pursuit of people in this city called Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was this great city. We read that twice in the book. (coughs) It was the capital of Assyria and the Assyrian um, (coughs) Empire. It had a large population and it was a centre of commerce, trade and culture. And it was a great and amazing city, but it wasn't just a great city. We also know from the Bible that the city of Nineveh was an evil city. It was known as a violent city. In fact, the prophet Nahum, another minor prophet, his whole book is basically a book in criticism of the city of Nineveh. He speaks against Nineveh in chapter 3, verse 1 in Nahum. He writes this. He calls it the bloody city. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. (coughs) The reputation of Nineveh was one of violence was one of brutality, was, uh, was a city that you would not walk into lightly, full of evil. Because from the distance, it looked like this wonderful cultural hub. But that incredible culture, the incredible structures that were built in the city of Nineveh, had behind them and had around them a dark underbelly of violence. And in some ways that's not that distinct from our cities. There are places in the city, in our city of Sydney, that we won't go at certain times of night for fear of violence normally. Um, Even a news report this week, a Sydney construction worker claims he was just trying to break up a fight over a stolen chip when he inflicted a fatal punch on a Brazilian man on the Gold Coast. There you go. That's the violence of inner city. And, and over what? Uh, it's, they're not fighting over a girl or some piece of significant property. They're fighting over a chip. And, you know, in, in some ways, yeah, we're not directly associated, I take it, every day with the violence of a city. And yet... There are many ways in which we, in the kind of TV shows that we watch, um, they often, I mean, the highest rating shows always have an element of violence. I must admit, when I go and see a rating of, like, G or PG, I wonder if the movie can be any good because it, you know, might lack some grittiness. In the computer games that we play, uh, I've started playing a game with my son called Call of Duty. And basically, it's a game of violence, don't laugh. Uh, In the sports we love, uh, you know, some of our ladies might think that, you know, 15 blokes running against each other head-to-head is some form of violence. But there are actually, I mean, in the last 10 years, um, what I've noticed is how um, I've seen on Facebook friends grow in their um, appreciation involvement in mixed martial arts and UFC. There is a sense in which violence actually, although we're quite distant from it on an everyday basis, it fascinates us. 
were really interested in it. I don't know what kind of school you went to, but I remember from even primary school right up to high school, you'd have two boys facing one another. And there would develop a circle around those boys. And there would be a chant that came from the boys as they encircled these two potential fighters. And they would say, don't do it, don't do it, please, this is wrong, this is wrong, don't do it. It's not what they say, is it? It's not what they say. See, violence is a problem with the human heart. And what does God do when he sees violence? Well, have a look there in verse 2. He's sick of it. The wickedness of Nineveh has come before him. And so what he does is he doesn't send a riot squad, you know, paramilitary kind of style to break up the, the violence within the city of Nineveh. What does he send? He sends prophet. He sends a preacher into the middle of this violence. Why does God send Jonah? Well, God sends Jonah because he didn't make the world for violence. See, God is not apathetic or indifferent when it comes to violence. I think, in so many ways, we are these days. The fact that violence has taken such a place in our entertainment I think means that we've developed a little bit of an apathy or an indifference to violence. But God sent Jonah because violence arouses his anger. Um, In chapter 3, verse 9, it arouses his fierce anger because violence violates the very creation that he has made. Violence violates the image of God that every human being has been given. Violence violates the command, do not murder. And so when a culture is indifferent or perpetrates a cycle of violence, we might be okay with that. But God isn't. He can't just turn a blind eye. He's got to do something about it. And so he sends his prophet. And in chapter 3, verse 4, we read this prophet's message... Have a look in chapter 3, verse 4. Um, it's interesting. Jonah is a prophet, and this is the only thing that he prophesies. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Um, some of you might think, well, that's a pretty good sermon, Stu. Why don't you preach one that short? Let me suggest that I wonder in a room this size if not some of us have been the victims of violence. When you've been a victim of violence, it eats you up. It's not something that you can just easily keep in your past. It stays with you and it affects you. And so if you've been a victim of violence, and if you live in a society that's a little apathetic when it comes to violence, you need to know that God sees every act of violence that occurs in our world. It reaches his ears, and he's not apathetic about it. And there might be for others, those of us who have not been the victims of violence, but perhaps those of us who have perpetrated violence, thinking that, well, look, really God doesn't care 
he doesn't hear or he can't see. And we need to know that God is displeased and he will judge evil and every form of violence. See, why does God send Jonah? God sends Jonah because he hates violence. He abhors it. And he can't let it slide, any form of it. And he will judge it. But that doesn't really answer the question because if it was just the fact that God wanted the Ninevites to know about his anger, why does he send a prophet? I mean, he could have just judged them, wiped them off the face of this world. Well, here's why. God sends Jonah not simply because of his anger towards violence, but because God is different from us. I'm a one-trick pony. I can only ever do one thing at a time. And I can only ever feel, generally, one thing at a time. But God's not like me, unlike most of the men in this room. He's complex. He's able to hold quite divergent realities, intention, and at once. See, in, in God's anger, God remembers mercy. This is, this is a remarkable thing about God. In his anger, he remembers mercy. And you hear it. You hear it in Jonah's message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now that doesn't sound like well, in one sense, do you think that's a message of mercy or a message of judgment? Well, just, you know, kind of help me out. Put, put your hand up for message of judgment. Put your hand up for message of mercy. Yeah, it's, it's kind of both, isn't it? Um, you can see how even in, sorry, Glenn? Warning. Yeah, it, there is a sense of judgment there. Judgment is coming in 40 days. But... That means that there's 40 days. For those that have perpetrated this kind of violence and those in the city of Nineveh, they have 40 days in order to realise what they've done and to turn. See, the heart of God is not simply angry against violence and sin, but when his heart is aroused in anger, God also moves in mercy. This is how he's different to me. He moves in both anger and mercy at the same time. This is what we see Uh, in the book of Jonah towards the Ninevites, that this is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he's not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient toward the world, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should repent. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. See, this message that Jonah is taking to the Ninevites, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, is one of warning, but it's also an opportunity to turn. He sends the prophet that he might communicate the merciful heart of God. And that's why he sends Jonah to Nineveh, and that's why he sends us into the world. So let me ask you, when you move out into the world, do you move out into the world sharing the heart of God? Both his anger at evil and also his mercy and his forgiveness? For some of us, we need to realise that the evil in our world is a deep offence to God. 
I think the reality is that many of us are just so inoculated and desensitised to evil in our world. And we, we're desensitised because we do that as a coping mechanism. It's hard to live in a world where we're so offended by evil. And so what we do is we seek to diminish that evil over time such that it doesn't really bother us anymore. And so we go into a world that where people act in evil ways, but that has little effect on us. If that's us, then we need to share the heart of God. He is angry toward evil. Our world is not just broken, it's rebellious. Our world is not just fractured, but it's actually united in its evil. And for some of us, we're actually the opposite. For some of us, we're so affected and offended and righteously outraged by the evil in our world, we also have another coping mechanism. We think, I just I can't be bothered, let them go. They get, they'll get what they deserve, forget them. I'm not wasting my time with those kinds of people. For some of us, we need to remember that when we move into the world, we move into the world. And we don't retreat back. We're not only aroused by the anger that is caused by sin, but we are moved by the merciful heart of God to share his mercy. See, we come as Christian people and we say there is a God. We come and we say there is a God who is rich in love and he's rich in forgiveness and you can be forgiven too. This is what the Apostle Paul writes as he's writing to this Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 he says this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, not counting men's sin against them and he has committed us to this message of reconciliation. Here is the message that we're committed to, the Apostle Paul says, be reconciled to God. And who better? Who better to take that kind of message to the world than those who've actually experienced that reconciliation themselves? Who better to speak about God's grace than those who have tasted of God's grace? Who better than Jonah? Jonah, the one who grew up seeing the sacrifice in all its visual intensity, the sacrifice that was made that told him of a saviour who was going to come and take away his sin. Who better than from his earliest days knew of God, knew that God had chosen him and chosen his family and chosen his nation? Who better than someone like Jonah to take the message of God's reconciling love to the world? And so God chooses Jonah and God says to Jonah, arise, and go, and Jonah arises and flees. Jonah does not like God's assignment for him. He does not like the call. In fact, he despises the call that God has on his life. So unhappy is he with God's proposal that he takes a 75-kilometre trek to Joppa, Now, Joppa was a town not far from Israel. It was beyond the Israelite borders, on the coast, a port city, a Gentile city. You can see what Jonah's trying to do. 
God rules in his nation, Israel. So if he is to get out of Israel, then he's off grid, off God's grid, you know? He's out of God's range. Nobody will ask him questions in Joppa. And so what he does is he finds a ship at this port city in Joppa. God is sending him east to Nineveh. So Jonah takes a ship west, diametrically opposed in terms of its direction. In, if you open up there to chapter 1, verse 3, it says, After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish. Um, when it says that he's paying the fare, it, it suggests that it's not just his fare that he's paying in the original. It suggests that it's everyone's fare that he's paying. There's no boat going to Tarshish, so he'll make a boat go to Tarshish, even if he has to pay for the whole company of the ship. It's a private charter to anywhere but Nineveh. So intent is he on not following God's call. But the interesting thing is that the text says twice that he's not only running away from Nineveh, but it says, interestingly, that he is, verse 3, running away from the presence of God, literally the face of God. And we laugh. In fact, I've taught this story to my kindergarten kids. and They think it's hysterical. They think it's so funny that Jonah is so stupid that he could think that he could run away from God. He can't run away from the God of the land and the sea, as, God, as Jonah will later describe God, the God of land and sea. It's comical, but it's a tragic kind of comedy, because why do we think we're any different? Why do we think that we can run from the presence of God? Because I think if we're honest, just for a moment, that's what we do. That's what we do more often than we even realise or are willing to admit it. That's what I do. There are a number of ways that we seek to run from God. We evade the accountability of Christian community. We don't like the kinds of questions that people ask us around church. Or sometimes the way that we evade God is we act in such a ways that we in, in in such kind of abhorrent ways that we couldn't be in God's presence because if we were in His presence we wouldn't have said or have done the things that we do. There are so many ways in which we seek to pathetically and comically but tragically run from God, but most importantly. I think we run from God in this way. Geographically, Jonah is running away from Nineveh. He's off to Tarshish, out in Spain. They think probably Tarshish was. Nineveh is um, uh, near ancient uh, Babylon. And so he's running away from the destination that God has given him. He's running away from, if you like it, the job that God has given him. The, the way that we often use this language, he's running away from the mission that God has given him. God has sent him, that's what the word mission means, God has sent him to Nineveh and he's running in the opposite direction because to evade God's mission is actually to evade him because where is God present? Well, God is present in his mission. God is present in his purposes for our lives 
And Jonah is present with God when he is obeying his call to mission, and it's the same for us. We run from God when we fail to obey his call upon us to our mission. And so when we try to avoid something that God was calling us to do, we're doing exactly what Jonah has done. And so I'm not so sure that we can laugh so freely or be so hard on Jonah. But there are several reasons why you can't why you can understand why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, can't you? I mean, firstly, like all of a sudden this word comes to him, Jonah, go. And so it's it's sudden, uh, it's new, and, and of course, it's dangerous. I mean, it, it's not a Mediterranean cruise that Jonah is sent on here. It's, remember, not a bloody city. In Nahum's mind, it is the bloody city. And so here is Jonah, this vulnerable foreigner who doesn't speak the language. Maybe he's scared and he's not there to say, well, beautiful city you have. He's there to bring judgment. You can understand Jonah's apprehension, can't you? But I don't think that's why he's running. We don't have much about Jonah in the Bible outside of the book of Jonah, but we have this small section in the book of 2 Kings. And if you want to take a note, it's 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And we find it's not, this in the book of Jonah, it's not the first time that the word of God has come to Jonah. This has happened before in his life. In fact, during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who was a pretty nasty king, Jonah was called by God to go and stand before the king and proclaim a warning of judgment. And guess what Jonah did? He went and did it. So it's scary what God is asking. But Jonah is, is not prevented simply by his own fear. It's not his fear that's, present, that's uh, stopping him. Now, Jonah, Jonah um, we find the reason why Jonah doesn't want to go. Because it tells us at the very end of the book. Why don't you turn over to Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. And you'll see there that it's not fear that's, presenting, that's uh, stopping Jonah, but Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. What displeased Jonah so much? What got under his collar? Well, we're told at the end of chapter 3, it's what God's done. And it says there at the end of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 10, Jonah's angry that God did not bring destruction, the destruction that he had threatened. Jonah is angry because God has shown mercy to the city of blood. In fact, it gets worse in chapter 4, verse 2. He starts to whinge and complain like a child. Now, one of the observations of scholars is that you know, Jonah is so childish and the way he acts, running from God. And here, listen to this in verse 2. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. 
I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, what is it about Jonah that makes him not want to go? It's not that he's bringing a message of judgment. It's not that he's fearing. He doesn't want to go because he's bringing a message of grace. He doesn't want to go because he's bringing a message of forgiveness to these people. See, Jonah doesn't like preaching a message of grace. I take it that he's fine with his message of grace for him and his family and his nation... But it's, a, you know, it's an elite grace in Jonah's mind, I think. It's, it's reserved. It's set aside for him and his kind of person, his type, cut out of the same cloth as him. And this is one of the, I think, really the most kind of disturbing kind of realities in the book of Jonah is that Jonah does not want people to be saved. Why? Well, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we think that some people are disqualified from hearing the grace of God? You know, are there some people who are just a little past? I remember I I went to prison with uh, James Deaton and it's very intimidating walking the corridors of the prison. And it kind of, um, you, you know, I, I can't help but, as, as I remember thinking as almost a protective mechanism, you know, I don't need to be here for you. And at that moment, I wonder if I'm not that different to Jonah. See, is there any personal group that you would rather see judged than receive the mercy of God? Is there a person whom you even might be apathetic about whether they hear the message of the mercy of God? You see, Jonah's heart is also our heart. And that's what we are like. Because so often we lose the idea that we are all beggars in need of grace, that even the vilest offender... Even the worst, most violent of murderers is in need of the same grace as us. You see, Jonah knew the God of grace, but what Jonah didn't know was his need for the grace of God. On the Jewish festival of Yom Kippur, the day when the Israel were assured of their forgiveness of sins, because of the sacrifices that were done and that we as Christians believe is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and his sacrifice. It's interesting, on that day, there's a special ceremony, a special service worked out. And part of the service that's really important in the service is the book of Jonah. They read the whole book of Jonah and at the end of the reading of the book of Jonah, there is this call and response And the congregation says at the conclusion of the reading of the book, I am Jonah. I am Jonah. I am Jonah. And as we read this book over the next five or six weeks, we're going to find out that we are Jonah. And if that's true, we'll discover that it's not just those who don't know God, 
that need to be pursued by God's grace. It's those of us who do. Those of us for whom church and God are so familiar, those of us who have remembered Bible verses, those of us who have come to the table so many times, it's, it's us who need to be pursued by the grace of God. And you know one of the most beautiful things about this book? It's all about how God does pursue not only the Ninevites, but who pursues Jonah. And what we'll see in the next five weeks is that God will stop at nothing. God will stop at nothing to pursue Jonah, to recover this man and to come to him with his grace. He will use storm and fish and vine and Jonah will remember the grace of God. The grace of God not only for others, but the grace of God for him. Because before he could take the message of grace to others, as much as they might need it, Jonah needed to know the grace, to be reminded of the grace of God. And just as we close, I want to look at how God does it because there's this one point in the book of Jonah there in the first uh, chapter that we read in chapter 1, verse 6, where the storm is coming. And there in verse 6, the captain comes down to Jonah who's asleep under the deck and he says, how can you sleep, Jonah? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. What's interesting is in a NIV translation, it's a little lost, but if you, if you do have an ESV, another translation, in, chapter, in verse 1 and verse 6, the same word is used. The same word is used by God to Jonah, arise, in verse 1, and also in verse 6. This captain, when he says, get up, it's the same word, arise, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. You see, that's exactly what God is like. And this non-believing Gentile sea captain has a better idea in that moment of who God is than even the prophet of God. Because that's what Jonah's supposed to do. Jonah is the one who's supposed to be telling people who don't know about God what God's like because he's going to rescue. But now this sea captain is a preacher, not Jonah. See, one of, the reason that God, one of the reasons God calls us to go to people, the heart of God, is that through us, they might experience the grace of God. We know that. But what we're going to find out, what we're going to, I think, really be challenged by, is that there's another reason why God calls upon us to go and explain the grace of God to people who don't understand it. And that's for us. That through them, we might come to understand we might come to deepen our understanding. We might come to be woken up from our lack of understanding of the grace of God. I've been jogging with Jesse over the past couple of months and we often jog, jog early in the mornings and I come into him sometimes in the morning because I've been waiting downstairs, six o'clock, five past six, he's not there, so I go up, he's fast asleep. And sometimes, I, you know, I kind of shake him a little. He says, oh, Dad, I can't, and I let him go. Yeah, he's tired. But other times, I say, no, come on. We said, we said we jogged this morning and you love it. And I know that you want to train 
And so get up. Come on, mate. Get up. We're going. And so I help him out. And he eventually gets up. And once we're out jogging, you can't stop him. He's not crawling back to bed then. See, I, I go and wake him up. I jog with him because I know that once he's up, he loves it. I say to him, get up, arise. Not for me, but for him. Get up, arise. You see, God doesn't need us for his mission. God doesn't need us, but he says to us, get up, arise. And in using us, it's for our own good. See, God was gracious in sending Jonah to Nineveh. And that was just the start because as resistant as Jonah was and as resistant as we are, God has not given up. We might be apathetic, tired, but God isn't. And he would send the one who was greater than Jonah. One day, this one who was greater than Jonah was asleep. He was asleep on a boat and a storm came up and those around him started panicking about the size of this storm. And this one greater than Jonah said to that storm, peace, be still. See, this one greater than Jonah was not thrown in. Or was he? Because what's interesting, the day of Yom Kippur, in that reading, when they close the section just after they say, I am Jonah, they close with a reading from Micah chapter 7, which says, God has thrown your sins into the sea. Jesus says that in him, the sign of Jonah is here. Jesus did spend three days, not in the belly of a whale, but Jesus spent three days in the belly of the earth because he was thrown. He was thrown into the sea of God's wrath when he died on the cross so that the blessing and promises of God might come to people like you and me, Gentiles, Ninevites, violent people with violent hearts, so that he might come and subdue our hearts, the storm in our hearts. And that's the gospel. Amen. Please stand as we sing.